Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. There's a quote I love from the Irish poet and Nobel laureate Seamus Heaney. He says, if you have the words, there's always a chance that you'll find the way. I think his words elegantly frame the message that my guest on JOSPT Insights today, Dr. Lindsay Plass, wants you to take into the clinic tomorrow. In today's episode, we talk about how the words that you use in a clinical consultation, perhaps even more than the diagnosis you make or the treatment that you deliver, shape the path for patients with musculoskeletal pain. Dr. Plass draws on her own experience managing femoroacetabular impingement syndrome and a decade of clinical experience to share her top tips for communicating and supporting patients to, in the words of Seamus Heaney, find the way. Lindsay received her Doctor of Physical Therapy degree from Northwestern University in 2012. She became a board-certified orthopaedic clinical specialist in 2016. Lindsay's a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopaedic Manual Physical Therapists, and her clinical and research work focuses on running and femoroacetabular impingement syndrome. Lindsay's an avid marathon runner and a long-course triathlete, so she definitely practices what she preaches. Dr. Lindsay Plus, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thanks, Claire. I'm honoured to be here. It is such a pleasure to have you join today. Now, today we're talking about words, what they might mean and the implications of our words as clinicians. And I'm going to set the scene a little bit by picking up that old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I think that we're getting a really good understanding and there's kind of a groundswell of research now around this idea that what clinicians say and how we talk with our patients, that can really have implications. And there's a classic study in oncology where the researchers found that when clinicians used more medical terms like non-invasive cancer, instead of describing a test that showed abnormal cells, the patients preferred more invasive treatments. Now, you argue that it is the words that are used in a clinical consultation more than the diagnosis or the treatment itself that probably makes the biggest difference to how people recover and how they progress. Lindsay, why is that? Yes. So I believe that words are very powerful, both in positive and negative ways. Um, and I think my own kind of story about my own hip with FAI and a labral tear is a good example of you know, how words can really change like the trajectory of their injury or their recovery. You know, there was a study done by Boy and colleagues in 2015, and it was published in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine. And they actually reported that 71% of patients were willing to undergo surgery based on their physician's recommendation. And it's quite shocking to me to reflect back, but actually, you know, I almost became one of them. You know, there seems to be more and more research showing that imaging findings related to FAI and labral tears do not always correlate to the severity of pain. So I just think clinicians from all disciplines, you know, need to be aware that what they say to the patient can really have an impact on them. 
Lindsay, using your experience as a person with hip pain, and we're going to talk mainly about femoroacetabular impingement syndrome today, what did you hear when the clinician told you that you had a hip deformity or you had a CAM lesion? And how do you think you would have reacted if the clinician had have talked about the morphology of your hip instead? We're now starting to talk a lot more about CAM morphology rather than you know, CAM impingement as, a, as the traditional terminology. But how do you think that that language would have changed how you reacted or how you felt about your hip and your chances of recovery from this hip pain? I think it would have changed, you know, my experience in such a huge way. Lindsay, we're going to be talking today about your diagnosis of femoroacetabular impingement syndrome and the hip pain that you had struggled with for a long time. Can you give us a little bit of background? Can you set the scene for us, your injury history and you know, share as much or as little as you would like to, but I think that'll help, the set, help to set the scene for the listeners about you know, where you were at in your athletic career and then what happened when you started to feel pain in your hip. So I grew up playing a lot of different sports, basketball, soccer, softball, volleyball, even dance, even gymnastics, <laughs> tried a little bit of everything. And then in high school, played volleyball, basketball, and soccer. And then I was lucky enough to go on to play four years of collegiate soccer. Um, I actually never had any major injuries growing up. But I think a, an interesting thing that now I can reflect on, and I think this is a good time where we can also mention the value of the Young Athletes Hip Research webinar. I think anybody interested in FAI and labral tears. Um, should definitely check that out. We'll put a link to the Yahir website in the show notes. Just a note to people that it's, um, it is a paid course. So it's a full continuing education. It's got CEUs attached to it. And so one of the webinars discusses how now the research is showing that, you know, the CAM morphology is actually developing during adolescence. And I think it's interesting to me because although I never had any like limiting injury, I did have random like right posterior thigh knee pain when I was about 11 or 12. I reflect on that and just wonder, you know, was that the critical period where like the loading I was doing to my hip was contributing to the development of the cam? And, but so then I, you know, was lucky enough to go on and had no issues all through college. And, you know, the issue actually started after college, when I really got into marathon running, long distance running, there's multiple factors that can contribute to why someone has pain. And for me, you know, I look back and I think the reason my hip had started hurting was because I, you know, in college was doing a lot of well-rounded strength training and running in, in the soccer itself. And then after college was, you know, running six days a week typically at, you know, six or more miles per day and not doing any strength training, you know? So I, it's easy for me to reflect back now and, and be like, well, yeah, of course, you know, at some point your body was going to say, Hey, this is not sustainable. And I was also running one to two marathons a year, you know, and how that relates to what was said to me about my hips. I remember, you know, I had the, the MRI and the first thing was kind of reading that written report. And I remember the lingo was just so confusing to me. You know, it actually said 
chondrolabral junction, full thickness cartilage fissure. So of course, I, I'm like researching, you know, what does this mean? And, and trying to understand, because keep in mind, it was a, a newer grad. And then it also had said cam and pincer lesion. So I have this piece of paper and I go and I see the surgeon and right away I can vividly remember like he comes in and within five minutes, you know, is looking at my imaging and says, you have cam pincer lesions with a large acetabular labral tear. You need a hip arthroscopy. You need to stop running. If not, you'll end up getting a hip replacement in 10 to 20 years. It was so much to take in. And when you, it could be any sport, but for me, it's running was something I love and a huge passion of mine. And you hear somebody tell you like, you need to stop this. Essentially what it was saying is like, you're going to keep damaging your hip. It was just like, it really made me kind of spiral down into a deep place of depression and just really negatively impacted how I felt about my hip. What's really striking here, Lindsay, is that this was all happening when you had PT training. So I'm just thinking about, you know, we go through PT school and we talk a lot about what these diagnoses mean, what prognosis is, and, you know, how to care for people with musculoskeletal injuries, how to treat these sorts of injuries and how to help people get better. And we also talk about, you know, that empathy and, and compassion and, and how you might approach a patient. And so when you've got all of that background and it it's completely flawed you and then has meant then you, you know, spiraling into this pretty dark emotional place, I can only imagine how it might feel for someone who has not got that background as well. So it's really, uh, to me, that's a really striking illustration of just how, you know, the language is often normalized for us as clinicians. And we, in sometimes we forget that this is the first time that this person is hearing these really scary words. And what they're actually hearing is probably not the diagnosis, but what the implications might be for the rest of their life. Right, right. And so I think, you know, now having been practicing for 10 years, having learned so much more about the hip, about how prevalent labral tears are, how prevalent cam morphology is. I often think if I could go back and explain my diagnosis to my younger self, what I would say is often how I explain it to my patients. And it's actually quite like therapeutic for me to kind of think about it in this way. I would say, you know, Lindsay, your right hip has some changes on the inside that are actually quite common in most people, especially athletes, especially soccer players. And that hip got you through more than 20 years of sport, four of which were collegiate soccer without any issues or pain. And you have a bump on your femoral head, which just means it's bigger than usual, but on the spectrum of small to big, yours is actually kind of in the middle. And you have some changes in the hip cartilage. These changes are quite common. And especially as we get older, you know, in our 30s, 40s, 50s, like our hip has taken us some pretty awesome places. Well, any body part, you know, and you think of all the great things you've been able to accomplish. And when I think about it that way, I just feel so much better because, you know, for 
a period of time in the beginning, there was actually like a lot of shame in finding out I had a hip with FAI and in a labral tear. Like I felt just so guilty. Like, what did I do to, to cause this? You know, was it my training? You know, we still actually don't know if it can be prevented. That's a pretty like freeing thought. Yeah. And I guess it's that reassuring someone that it's not your fault that this has happened and it's not something that you've done wrong or that, oh, if only I'd done such and such, I could have stopped this other thing. I get that a lot now in the patients I see, you know, they're often wanting to know why did this happen and and why all of a sudden is their hip hurting and, you know, what did they do to cause this? And I think that that's a scenario where we as clinicians can right away challenge that belief that the patient has and step in and, and reframe it in a way that actually empowers them that what you did there, Lindsay, so elegantly is to weave a really non-threatening way of, of speaking, a non-threatening, non-judgmental way of presenting facts with the best research evidence that we have at a level that is appropriate for the patient. And to me, that is absolutely what we're talking about when we talk about evidence-based practice. And we'll all know that classic three circles or however you want to frame that evidence-based practice model of the the research, the clinical experience and the the patient's experience. And I, I'm really grateful for you sharing how you approach that with patients. Can you talk a little bit about how you get to that place? You know, how do you keep on top of all of the research? Where do you find all of this information to share with patients? That's been one silver lining of my my struggles with my own hip. Um, If you've listened to me on other podcasts, you may hear this quote that I like to share that one of my professors at Northwestern, Jane Sullivan, who has always been a great mentor to me. I remember her saying like, you know, Lindsay, some of the best PTs I know have used a personal struggle to make them a better clinician. And and I think that now I can look back and I'm like, wow, she was spot on (laughs) because just got on. Twitter, I got on PubMed and I was researching, you know, who are the top hip PTs in the world, top researchers. And that's how I connected with Joanne Kemp and her team. Michael Ryman became a great mentor to me. And so I think just through that, you know, like just getting in touch with those people, finding out what they were studying and and one of the strong areas that JOSPT is focused on is patient and public partnership in research. And I have to make the full disclosure that I met you through the Yahir webinar series, and it was my privilege to meet you there, Lindsay. And I'd like us to talk a little bit about your experience as a patient public partner in research. Before we get there, though, you left us on tender hooks with your diagnosis of FAI syndrome and you were recommended surgery. What happened? What what did you end up doing? I, you know, was recommended to have this surgery and I was actually in the midst of a an orthopedic physical therapy residency at Johns Hopkins Hospital and George Washington University. And so I was, you know, in that program and and it was really intense. And I was you know, thinking, gosh, how can I have a, a surgery at this time? So, um, but my mind actually was in that place where I I was 
of the mindset of like, okay, I have this problem in my hip, it needs to be fixed. And so I had surgery scheduled for that summer. I had stopped running. I had just really stopped, you know, I was trying to figure out like, what can I do for exercise? And I was going to physical therapy at an outside clinic and they were not really, you know, preparing me to get back to running. It was more so like, let's just get you ready for surgery. I was lucky enough that um, one of my mentors at Hopkins, Mark Shepard, who is a fantastic PT, you know, stepped in and he just, he was like, I noticed, you know, something is, isn't right. Like, are you doing okay? And then I just kind of broke down and told him, you know, everything that was going on. And so he said, look, you know, I'm not making any promises, but I think I can help you with your hip. And so we set up formal physical therapy and he did, he helped me. He really empowered me that actually, despite what my imaging had said, my hip was still a great hip. And, you know, he challenged my beliefs as to why, like, why, why don't you think you can back to running? And a lot of it had to do with this fear that running was going to make it worse. You know, running was going to make my hip get osteoarthritis when really now, you know, we know that those things are not true. Over the span of like five to six months with the PT really spread out to like at that point, every three to four weeks, we'd do kind of a check-in session. I did get back to running and my hip actually felt better. I then transitioned to working with a strength and conditioning coach, Mark Shropshire. And he was great because he really broke down like the fears I had about loading my hip and doing more weightlifting. And the other key component was that I worked as a sports psychologist. So she really helped me break down my relationship with exercise, with running, and again, go over fears I had about running, making my hip worse. Also breaking down like the fears about what was still initially said about my hip. You need to stop running or else you're going to make it worse. You're going to get hip arthritis. Altogether, probably took like a year and a half to two years. I'm really happy to say that I did get back to marathon running. And since this whole thing started, I've actually done four more marathons. Now I finally believe, hey, my hip can get back to long distance running. That's great news. Congratulations. And I think the other key message here, Lindsay, from you is that this recovery process takes time. And so I I guess that's a really important message to share with patients up front is that this is not going to work in seven days or seven weeks or maybe even seven months. It might be a good six to 12 to even 18 months before you're back at that end goal of whatever the sport is or whatever the the activity is that you want to do, but there's hope and we can get you there. And with this plan, here's the plan and, and, you know, let's work on this together. Definitely. And I think that that's one area that all healthcare providers can, can improve on in that, you know, I think we still see some people telling patients that, oh, you know, try six weeks of physical therapy. And, you know, Jo Kemp, she has studied with her physio first trial that even, you know, the best targeted physical therapy exercises are not going to make an improvement in six weeks, you know, that it really takes like three to six months 
Let's jump and talk a little bit about your experience as a partner, a patient public partner in research. So what does that mean to you and kind of how do you see the the collaboration and, and contributing to research as a clinician, as a patient, as someone who's not necessarily employed by a university? It's unique in that I'm able to I'm able to offer a broader perspective of like someone who went through this and who experienced all these struggles through the healthcare system with my increased knowledge as a clinician and kind of reflect on and assess like what parts of my own, you know, lived experience with my hip could have been better had certain, you know, things occurred or certain healthcare providers said things differently. We've contributed a lot to the Yahir collaboration work and you're contributing to the consensus project on femoral cam morphology, a big Delphi project that Dr. Paul Dykstra is leading, in, who's a sports medicine physician from Aspatar. What I see is there's so many opportunities for folks to get involved in really meaningful research and not to feel like, oh, well, I'm, I'm a clinician or a patient. I'm not connected to a university, so I'm, I'm not a researcher or I can't contribute or, or my contribution is not valued. It's been such an honor to be a part of the, the Yahir group. And I've learned so much, too, from the other clinicians. And the fact that it's multidisciplinary really gives you a window into what other clinicians are thinking and what else is out there. That consensus work will come out in 2022 as well. So I'd encourage the JOSPT Insights listeners to keep an eye out for that and we'll certainly alert folks to that consensus statement when it comes out. Lindsay, as we start to wrap up, what I'd like to do is to finish by asking you to imagine there's a young athlete um, who walks through your, your clinic door tomorrow when you're back in the clinic and she wants your help to decide whether she should have surgery or not for her hip pain. What are the three things that you really want to make sure that she understands about FAI syndrome? The top three things I would say that I would want someone to know or consider, I would first ask them, you know, when is the hip bothering you? And is it during your sport or outside your sport? And I think along those lines, like, you know, how many more years of the sport do they have? Try at least five to six months of physical therapy before pursuing surgery. Obviously, if they're a senior or there's other time constraints, that length of time may be shorter. But for most people, if they can really attempt good physical therapy for four to five months. I think another key thing is asking questions regarding mental health. There's a lot of research now showing that we have a role in psychological readiness and that we should be screening for it and assessing it and getting a window into their their psychological readiness about their hip. The third thing is really the expectation that the surgery may help you, but, you know, zero out of 10 is not the goal. You know, your hip may improve, but it will not be the same as a hip that never had FAI. Patients who go into the surgery knowing that they're going to have to make some lifestyle adjustments and have to incorporate more specific, you know, hip exercises into the routine do a lot better, like in my clinical experience, than patients who go into it thinking that this will be like a one-year recovery process and then they'll be good. 
as we know, like flare-ups will happen even two, five years down the road, setting that expectation that, you know, this is a condition that requires kind of lifelong hip maintenance can really help as well. Dr. Lindsay Plus, thank you for so generously sharing your experience and your expertise with us today on the JOSPT Insights Podcast. Thank you so much, Claire. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm